HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Greg Bresnitz. And I'm Darren Bresnitz. We're the host of Snacky Tunes. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, September 16th. This is the 78th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guests are an award-winning journalist power couple, and I will introduce them in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to not be afraid to mix work and pleasure. It's okay to combine your business life with your social life. I always tell people that I have one social work life, so I can't separate the two. This works for me, and it could work for you. Of course, you need to find the right balance, but it can be a winning combination. So be open-minded to mixing th- things up. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very honored and excited to have my guests here. They are Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, two-time James Beard award-winning creators of The Flavor Bible, The Vegetarian Flavor, Flavor Bible, What to Drink with What to Eat, Culinary Artistry, Becoming a Chef, and more, plus the forthcoming Kitchen Creativity. And I could go on and on, so I'm going to break in and talk to you guys because I'm just honored to have you here. So welcome. Oh, we're happy to be here. Great to Great see to you, Great to be Sherry. here. Thank you. Yeah, no, your accolades and your, I, I, I could do the whole show just reading about everything you accomplished, but let's, <laughs> let's dive into it. And, and no, it's very impressive. And I'm going to start out with my question from last week because I asked my guest, Jeannie Voltzinis, the chef concierge at the Viceroy New York Hotel, to ask you a question. And her question was, how did you start your careers? 
<laughs> I know. Just I a real to... easy one. Yeah. Right yeah. yeah. It's not even open-ended at all. Yeah. I, well, <laughs> kicking it off with that. Um, well, let's see. Um, I guess our career together as authors um, kicked off in 1992 when we landed our first book deal to write our first book, which was Becoming a Chef, which came out in 1995. And prior to that point, Andrew had been working as a professional chef, uh, cooking in um, top restaurants in Boston and New York City. Uh, he'd worked with um, James Beard Award winner um, Chris Schlesinger. Schlesinger at the East Coast Grill and uh, Lydia Shire at Biba in Boston. Nice. And then w- when we moved to New York in 92, he was working with Ann Rosenzweig. And he had never gone to cooking school and was really interested in, you know, should he, you know, he'd worked with these great chefs and was learning so much in their kitchens, um, but he, as he hadn't been to cooking school, should he um, leave and go to cooking school? Could he work his way up? Um, and I said, you should really go buy a book on becoming a chef. He said, there are no books on becoming a chef. And I said, well, maybe you should write one. And we did some research. We found out that the chef's profession was named one of the top 10 careers for the 1990s. And I thought, you know, there's a real opportunity here. You should seriously consider writing a book. And he said, well, I'm not really, um, I don't think of myself as a writer. And I said, well, I'll help you. And so those were the magic words that led us to write our first book proposal, um, which got turned down by every literary agent and, uh, and every editor that eventually saw it, except one. And so thank you to Pam Charles of Van Oosten Reinhold, um, who said yes, because you only need one yes. And that led to the first book, uh, which um, everybody um, said, you know, isn't going to be a bestseller. It's not going to get on the Today Show. Uh, just be really happy that you published your first book. It's a big accomplishment. And we thought, well, we didn't work for two and a half years of weekends and evenings um, to let it sit on the shelves. So we uh, promoted our way to uh, uh, ha- get, having it be on the Today Show, having it uh, win the James Beard Award for Best Writing on Food, and, and that kind of launched the rest. So one book led to the next, which led to the next, and we lose track. We're either on book number 10, 10 or 11, 11 or yeah. something like that. <laughs> wow. So the first book won James Beard, and now it's coming up. It's its 20th anniversary. Exactly. Yes. That's incredible. So did you, I mean, you said you wanted to, you'd help him. Were you writing at the time? I mean, what's, Karen, what's your background? um, I had actually gone to journalism school at Northwestern. So I started out at Medill. I was uh, a Scripps Howard Foundation journalism scholar there. And I'd always been interested in writing and hopeful that I would figure out something to write about, that I could actually write books. Um, Never dreaming it would be food, but um, I, after Going, getting my undergraduate degree in economics and going on to business school um, uh, and consulting with Fortune 500 food and beverage companies and really being interested in some of the strategic issues that uh, food companies were facing and really understanding how when Andrew would come home at night, we would talk about some of the flavor concepts and product development concepts that my clients were grappling with. And I was getting a lot of insight from him and from his colleagues and from his industry and realizing that the best chefs in America were really sort of the early warning system, um, the research and development arm, if you will, for really what was going on in food in America. So um, we had a lot of really interesting conversations about that. And I realized that the two were much more closely linked. I think even back then in sort of the late 1980s, early 1990s, you could see that um, some of the flavor trends, some of the product trends, they were all starting with the top chefs in America and kind of trickling through the food chain um, so that you're seeing 
things in the frozen food aisle and in the grocery store aisle that I think some of those concepts really started with some of the top chefs in the country. Yeah, I agree. Andrew, how did you two meet? (laughs) Um, Let's see. I just moved uh, to Boston from San Francisco, and I was visiting New York for the very first time. It was Thanksgiving weekend. I was with a roommate. Um, and uh, we had a mutual friend. This was back in the day where you could commute between Boston and New York like for $15 uh, or $25 on People's Express. And we had a mutual friend uh, that Karen did not know that we had a mutual friend. And our mutual friend said, oh, you can stay in my apartment in Brooklyn. Call Karen Page. She's the funnest girl in New York City. You know, if you two guys, visit, if you're visiting New York for the very first time, you're going to call the funnest girl in New York of City. Of course you are. Yeah, and you're going to call her 12 times until you finally get a hold of her at work on a Saturday night uh, <laughs> on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, luckily, she took pity on these two. Uh, first off, she's like, who are you? What's going on here? She said, we're, we're at the Pyramid Club. Our friend is so-and-so. She said to give you a call, and Karen said, oh, sure. I'll meet for a drink. She's smart. I'll meet for a drink. And then uh, next thing you know, we're eating, actually going out for Italian in Brooklyn. And then back in those days, we, we could then, you know, go home, rest up, and then go out dancing. And uh, we've been together ever since that first flash Nights of the eyes. 30 years ago yeah. this Thanksgiving. So 30 years later. And That's awesome. I see the love. <laughs> the love in the room. It's everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, that's no. the PG version. Okay, good. <laughs> Got it. There Got it. Go. This is Heritage Radio, though. We can. <laughs> we can uh, we'll move on. <laughs> so, what's it like on this first book? Like actually writing this book together. How how was the division of work? Uh, you know, how did it work? That well, Karen's Karen's always been the lead writer of all of our books, um, and she will have a vision and um, can think linearly which is not naturally my forte, unfortunately. But what's fun was when we started doing the interviews early on, we sort of saw how each other played differently in that if I was talking to a chef, we could get into very easily chef speak. And it would be very insider and like, ha, 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 yak, yak, yak. Oh, and then this guy threw a rondo through a window. And like, you know, chef and I would be laughing and Karen would be like, what's what the a, heck's a rondo? What's a rondo? Yeah. And so first off, she sort of made it so the dialogue would approach everybody and help everyone and be clear that she also wasn't an insider. She wasn't someone who worked the line like I did. And so she could ask much bigger questions, much bigger context questions that I, I was still sort of a forest for the trees sort of guy at that point in time. I was still working the line for our first few books. And so my perspective really was, you know, a 12 foot long kitchen surrounded by metal with a lot of screaming and yelling and, you know, that sort of thing going on and obviously the industry's changed dramatically and and we've been able to chronicle that but Karen always brought which was so important a very different outside view and also just as an observer of seeing what's going on in the culinary world that's sort of what been our sort of one of the strengths and weaknesses of our writing. Well, I think I had studied um, sociology. That was a particular passion of mine at Northwestern as an undergrad and so I just realized that sort of from a sociological perspective what I experienced my husband going through on a day-to-day basis in the kitchen was unlike any other work environment I'd ever studied or heard of you know he would come home and say oh yeah I got screamed at today I said well you're you're being euphemistic you know I mean someone literally screamed at you that would be barbaric he's like no I basically got screamed at and you know you hear about 
as we started our interviewing for Becoming a Chef, you learned about the um, history of some of the French chefs who were involved in the early, you know, apprenticeships in France where, you know, they started at the age of 13. They were treated basically like slaves um, it's a, in their own words. They would use that word. And, you know, they said, basically, the, the chef owned me um, and they would, you know, swat you around um, if they didn't uh, like what you were doing or to punish you. So it, there was a, a very interesting tradition that way of um, that sort of, you know, kind of evolved over time into the culture of kind of this, the screaming, yelling restaurants, which some people today wouldn't, if you're just entering a restaurant kitchen today, you might not be aware that that was part of the tradition, um, you know, but because I think now you've got a lot more open kitchens. <laughs> it a used to more. be behind the, the little closed door, so the behavior was a little um, different than it is today with the open kitchens. There's, you know, a culture of serenity. We're, we've, we're hopefully more evolved as an industry, so you're seeing chefs really, you know, setting um, a whole different example than they did uh, when we were a little more rough and tumble in right. the kitchen. I think, I think the, sort of the serenity is a, a good thing on a lot of levels. One, it's much easier to concentrate when it's quiet and no one's like yelling at you. But also if you think about the dining experience like where Charlie Trotter put in a kitchen table you know, years ago, or if you're dining in the Levin Madison, you might get a kitchen tour and you go back and you see 30 people working pretty much silently, completely focused. I mean, it isn't the Wild West anymore. It's a very serious, very sophisticated um, career that's going on where people have trained very hard, worked very hard to get to where they are. And I get in, again, thinking of someone like Eleven Madison, where that is the dining, you know, the kitchen is part of the dining experience. And so you really can't go back there and see chaos because, A, it wouldn't produce the food that you're trying to produce at Eleven Madison. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I lived in Chicago for a few years before New York, and I was a server at Trotter's, and s- sometimes I was assigned to that kitchen table, and, the, mm-hmm. and it, was, um, it was the chef's table right there at the pass, and yeah. it, was, it was stressful because you were presenting in front of these people, and the kitchen was there, and it was all, the show, it was, the show was open. But it was also I learned so much from being there, and it was it was it was like a thrilling experience at the same time. Like it was really it was really great. But you're right; it's different now because now there's so many. Right, that was pioneering mm-hmm. in those exactly. days. Charlie Trotter, was pioneering certainly in so and many yeah. ways. Mm-hmm. Right. right, but so it's it's really yeah. evolved. I think you know we've seen the evolution of the professional restaurant kitchen from the blue collar profession, um, and you know. Uh, a different type of person maybe dominating that kitchen to evolving uh, into uh, certainly craftsmanship and I think um, in some restaurant kitchens really approaching the level of artistry and so there's a different sociological right perspective that really applies to each of those kitchens at, at different points in time which is fascinating yeah and I have I brought a surprise we love surprises <laughs> good so back from 1998 Ah, <laughs> I have dining out. <laughs> Book number three. I, I had I, I bought this back when I was in Chicago. I, you know, this is a time I, now I buy tons of books. All the you know, supporting lots of chefs and people I know. 
but somehow I was influenced to buy this incredible book that you guys wrote, <laughs> and and I've had it, and yeah, so I've known you. I mean, this is back in my serving days. I've known you since then, and so it's truly 1998. Yeah, is so when it came out. so tell me yeah. tell me about the inspiration. And you know who's behind. on the cover? It, that's Ruth Reichel, who's actually on the cover of the New York Times food section today. So we've come full circle. You have. It reminded me a little of Gail Green, the way mm. with the hat, <laughs> right. you know, but. Um, so tell me about this book a little bit. What what inspired it? Well, after we finished Becoming a Chef and Culinary Artist, you know, one book always leads to the next. And so Becoming a Chef, Andrew was still at, in that perspective of, you know, I think I want to be a chef restaurateur. What are all the secrets I can learn so I can do that? And then we fell in love with the process of researching chefs and restaurateurs and really wanting to get inside their heads and, and to share that. Um, but we realized in, after we wrote Becoming a Chef, we hadn't written much about food. And so that's what led to culinary artistry, where we really wanted to take the same approach that we did with Becoming a Chef and looking at their career paths to looking at their artistry and the way that they approached culinary composition. And so that was a book that really approached from the chef's perspective what they do, how they do what they do, and how they approach creativity. With Dining Out, we wanted to flip it on its side and sort of a Rashomon-like perspective of, okay, now let's take a look at you know, chef's creative process from the perspective of critics. You know, when they taste this, how do they decide if it's brilliant or if it's BS or something in between? And how do they make these pronouncements that this is worthy of four stars or one star or no stars? And so we spent a year eating out with restaurant critics all across America. And we did eat out with Ruth, um, who's actually on the cover of the book. We ate out with Gail Green um, when she was still writing for New York Magazine um, and across the country with their colleagues, uh, Dennis Ray Wheaton, Chicago Magazine, and your neck of the woods in Chicago when you were there. Um, we ate out with Sherry Verbila from the LA Times, Jonathan Gold, who at that tough. point was uh, LA Weekly. Tough, um, tough job, yes. the research you had to do. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun because a lot of times at, at that point in time, um, these critics were maintaining their anonymity. And so we sort of felt like, you know, just finding out what they looked like, what they were really like. Um, was pretty, um, I think, exciting for me as a you know food enthusiast, and a little traumatic for Andrew as a professional <laughs> chef. It was definitely traumatic at, at times. Um, I think the first time we were going to interview our very first critic was Robert Sietzma, and he was with The Voice at the time. We're walking down the street, and I was pretty uptight to say the least. And Karen's like, "What's what's the matter?" I'm like, "Who is this guy to judge my bouillabaisse? base? Who who is this guy?" And she's like, "Honey, you're a journalist right now. You're not a chef." change the hat and it turned out to be a fascinating conversation and I found Robert to be incredibly wonderful interesting and insightful and I found that with all the uh, the critics but actually how compassionate they were I mean again if you if you're reading it like the sports page you just sort of see like oh who are they, they going to take down this week or what's you know tough and then you realize and I realized at the time is how desperate they all were to find the next great restaurant or just any restaurant and we're eating out I think it's what Karen was referencing we're eating out with Gail Green at lunch and we're eating and the first thing the chef did wrong was send out an extra course so we'd had enough interviews to know when the critic comes in you don't acknowledge him you don't send out extra courses he sends out an extra course he comes over and says hello ooh strike number two and then we get done, and Gail just quite frankly says, you know, we're not gonna, I'm not going to write this place up. Go ahead and have dessert. It's not special enough. And I just felt like this poor kid. I mean, my heart just fell out of my chest for him. And then I thought about it. Well, she has 52, you know, reviews, possibly maybe less uh, a year. 
and is this one worthy of you know being in that New York magazine slot? And like looking back, it's like maybe not. But at the moment, I wasn't a critic. I was just the, the compassionate, sympathetic cook to this right. guy who to came see out this of this guy's table. career is heading like, yeah, it's like, south. And just knowing that he's going to be opening up New York magazine for the next month and a half, going, "Am I in? Am I in? Am I in?" And so yeah. it was an interesting process. It was also interesting when the meals we had with Ruth Reichel was we're out and she said, you know, uh, we were out at a steak restaurant. And she goes, you know, I'm ordering liver today. Like, I'm not eating prime rib every single time. I think it was time. her third visit. Her third so visit. Already so she had eaten, you know, the, the prime rib and the T-bone and um, the yeah, other. And then she also sort of alluded to, yes, I've been spotted because, you know, there was a, a waiter, you know, 10 feet away sort of watching the table. And she knew that. And she was not facing the waiter. She was facing us. And so she picked up on all the subtleties. And I think the other thing that was fascinating was I was at a restaurant and the maitre d' was hired to spot the critic. I mean, they had a lot more clout in these days when, when that book came out. I think they still. Oh, they still do. I mean, do that. I, I think yeah. everyone still wants a great review in the New York Times. Um, but it was very funny where, where we were cooking in at the time, and the uh, chef goes, "Ruth Reichel is in the house." So it's like everyone's on alert. So you know, it was a very uh, different time, but still, they, I still pick up the New York Times every Wednesday, and I still read Gail Green on Monday when she posts. I still read all the reviews; they're still fun. Yeah, incredible. Okay, so we're going to take a little break here, come back, talk some more with Karen and Andrew. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain, how they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio is like Fairway Market in that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, though. Every time I tune in. I learned something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. And this lovely song is by the California Honey Drops. It's called Spreadin' Honey. We are coming right back. Okay, welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guests today are award-winning co-authors Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg. So, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> so, so the Flavor Bible. Let's let's get into that because um, that was influenced by culinary in- artistry, right? Yes. Okay. Um, well, we had started our exploration of culinary creativity with culinary artistry. I think that's where our thinking and our focus really um, uh, started getting playful with the concept of how chefs were approaching creativity. And we realized one of the most popular aspects of that book were the brief sets of lists of what flavors go together uh, in that book. And so we realized 10 years 
uh, later, there was really the need for a book that really brought it up to date, um, that got a lot more specific about flavor pairings that really took things to the next level. And so the Flavor Bible has been described as culinary artistry on steroids, um, which I kind of like, um, because <laughs> it really goes into the next level. What really, you know, dissecting flavor. A lot of people will use the words flavor and taste interchangeably when, uh, in fact, one is a sub component of the other. And so um, taste is really a part of flavor, which uh, reflects what's going on in the tongue, the four basic tastes of sweet, sour, salty, bitter, plus the fifth taste umami, plus the next tastes that the researchers identify and that we can agree are part of um, the palate. But it's so much more than that. It's mouthfeel, it's texture, it's temperature, it's aroma. Aroma is a huge part of flavor. Um, as we learned as we both went through sommelier training programs during our sommelier certificates, um, but it's also something we call the mysterious X factor, which is every other factor we haven't identified yet that <laughs> plays a role in fa- flavor. And we're talking about things like the fact that your mother used to make a particular dish when you were growing up or your grandmother and that you've got, you know, it sort of tugs on your heartstrings every time you taste that. That is a, that's a legitimate part of the flavor experience. Nostalgia. And so, sorry? Nostalgia. Nostalgia, yeah. Nostalgia memory. Yeah. No, that's um, cool. All of it. Yeah. So it all kind of comes together and we use the Flavor Bible as an opportunity to really explore different aspects of flavor in ways that it had not been um, explored before. And what we were so thrilled to find is that um, it was so broadly useful, these concepts of flavor, not only to professional chefs who use it to come up with their next special when they're designing new menus, but also home cooks. They get their CSA boxes. They don't know what to do with a rutabaga. They don't know what to do with... um, you know, any mm-hmm. particular ingredient, they can look it up and find a list of the herbs, spices, and other seasonings that best enhance their flavor. Uh, but it's also useful to bar chefs and mixologists. And so there's a whole cult following. If you go to the modern, um, actually, Levy Carter, the wine writer in Sommelier, had tipped us off to that in a tweet on Twitter. And he said, it was just in the modern, and they've got a whole, this beautiful shelf of cocktail books with these custom-designed slip covers at the modern. And the Together, the ba- the spines of the book that face-, face the bar, the spines of the books create a cocktail glass, a martini. And one of the center books is actually the Flavor Bible. And so they have it front and center with their most prized cocktail books. And so we're thrilled um, that it it's behind the bar at some of the best restaurants all across the country being used not just in their kitchens, but in, behind the bars to make new cocktails. And it's also used by brewmasters to make right. new beers. It's used by nutritionists to design new uh, recipes that uh, get around whatever particular dietary restriction people tend to have, uh, whether it's gluten-free or uh, sugar-free or meat-free. Everything's free now. Free of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're really thrilled with how broadly applicable it's turned out to be. I also found the book just very inspirational, just as I still pick it up. Um, and for, if someone's not familiar with it, basically we interviewed chefs all around the country and talking about these topics. And actually one that really jumped out for me was we were interviewing Daniel Hume of uh, 11 Madison. And he goes, oh, I love asparagus soup. And we're like, well, we'll talk about asparagus soup. And for 15 minutes, he broke down exactly how he made asparagus soup. And you could read that sidebar and not have to have a recipe to make asparagus soup. It's like, oh, I take my asparagus, I blanch it, I save all the blanching water, and I use that as a base for the soup, then I put it into the bottoms, I puree, da-da-da-da. And I think that's the other thing. There's a lot of people who don't need recipes anymore. A lot of people don't need to be told, put on pan on medium, 
film with blah, 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 right, oil, right. yada, yada, yada. It's like, I have some asparagus. I know how to blanch asparagus. I know how to saute asparagus. And I had to throw it into a stir fry. But what else should I throw into my stir fry with my asparagus? And I think that's where the book is really helpful. It's just like, you don't have to comb through 300 pages of a, of a recipe-laden book. And also, I think the important thing is ingredients change throughout the season. So you, it does help you, like, okay, if you're going to put something with basil, it's like, well, taste your basil because in this the beginning of the season it's very light right now it's pretty darn bitter it's all it's september so it's like it's a very different ba- basil so you can't just say teaspoon of basil half a tablespoon of basil da, 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 da. it's like so i think the goal was to really free up people and that's what it really has that is just sort of free up people who who know how to make a pasta and it's like well, what am i gonna put in my pasta it's like a, it's you know i can't look at one more tomato it's like well here's a bunch of ideas for tomatoes maybe you want to saute them roast them here's some ideas for starburst you know throw them in the oven for 15 minutes this is from emily lucchetti uh, one of the great pastry chefs in America. So the other thing that's fun is, you know, when we talk about, like, you know, tough life, we could hang out with the, the very best chefs around the world and the country and say, gosh, tell us your secrets so we can share them with everyone else. And that's really what happens in the Flavor Bible. It's terrific because, you know, the, the, you're right. There's There are a lot of cooks that do want the step-by-step. Sure. But... There are a lot, and I think it probably in our world, that do cook that way, that just want suggestions or ideas to improve upon what they're doing. So that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the vegetarian flavor Bible that you – What that's is that, did you see a trend happening with vegetables, or did you just change your diet? You're looking at me, but I'm diet? looking at Karen right now because this was her inspiration completely. Well, you know, all of the above. The vegetarian flavor Bible in some ways is the second edition of the flavor Bible. I'll, I'll just come out and say that because if you were reading um, the – media last year you would have heard that Joel Robichon said that the cuisine of the next 10 years will be vegetarian if you open the New York Times today and read the article on the evolution of Noma you'll see they're moving to a point of offering a vegetarian menu at the number one restaurant in the world for 50% of the year during spring and summer and I think that you're seeing top chef after top chef after top chef really evolving in that direction where they're cutting back on the meat um, they're really playing up the vegetables which the vegetables the herbs and spices are really the heart and soul the flavor profile of any dish so jose andres too sure because he's he's doing the the beef steak he's yeah there's which, which that is, is i've which is I've, fantastic yeah yeah there mm-hmm. is that movement that's been absolutely. happening absolutely and all the chefs offering vegetarian and even vegan tasting menus we've had them at uh per se we've had them at the inn at little washington in virginia we've had them at 11 madison mm-hmm. park we've had them at danielle Pichelin. Um, i mean Pichelin, and, the, and absolutely. actually and we'll, sometimes we'll do one veg one vegan nothing's repeated it's not like one little tweak it's like i mean two very different menus being presented and it's they don't blink it's like oh Actually, we went to our, to take it the full circle, we went to our, uh, the Mexican restaurant in our neighborhood, and we would say, oh, we haven't been in a long time because we, you know, we didn't think he did vegetarian food. He was, oh, we have a whole vegetarian menu. So you're seeing it from like the local guy in New York City all the way up to dual-pairing menus at the very top restaurants in the country. It's a pretty amazing trend. So I think as you see the very best chefs in the world really focus on vegetarianism uh, it's you know it's it's interesting I think in the 1960s you saw it much more from an ethical standpoint or from an environmental standpoint when you realize what it takes to produce a pound of beef um, what you could do use with those same inputs to produce uh, an equivalent amount of grain um, is very different so um, from an environmental standpoint that really drove a lot of people to vegetarianism 
in the sort of the 60s and 70s, um, as did other considerations. Now, I think what's interesting and different is that you're seeing people coming to vegetarian vegetarianism or just you know vegetable centric uh, cuisine through a love of vegetables, through a love of flavor. And I think that is very different than something that we've ever seen before. And so I think um, whatever reason you come to it, we don't really care. We, do, we see that the movement is going in that direction. If you look at um, the trends of uh, meat consumption in the United States, it's fallen every year since 2007. And that is a trend that, that's predicted to continue into the foreseeable future. So for a whole host of reasons. And, you know, I, I think when you bring health into the equation, and that was the publication of the China study, which was the most far-reaching nutritional study of our time, um, well over a million copy bestseller that pointed to the fact that, um, you know, the, the huge correlation between overconsumption of meat and what they call the diseases of affluence, you know, the cancer, the heart disease, and so forth. Um, you know, we as Americans are killing ourselves. We're getting to a point where kids today have lower uh, life ex- or shorter life expectancies than their parents, and that is that's a crime. And so I think we need to get to a point where we're smart about what we eat. Um, you know, I don't think that the world is ever going to become 100% vegetarian, uh, but I think we need to move for a whole host of reasons toward the direction of continuing to decrease um, per capita meat consumption in the United States. We have been traditionally um, the high, one of the highest uh, uh, consumers of meat in the world. Uh, India, on the other hand, is one of the lowest. Uh, I think 40% of their population on average tends to be vegetarian. Um, that's about 5% in the United States plus the 2% that's vegan. But when you add to that the 47% of Americans that are actively looking to reduce their meat consumption for health reasons or other reasons, that's 54% of Americans today that are looking to reduce or eliminate meat from their diet. That's a huge sea change in cuisine. And so when those customers are going into fine dining restaurants, other restaurants, they're making those requests, the chefs are responding in turn. So it's like, are you going to lead the pack or are you going to respond? Either way, you're going to want the vegetarian flavor Bible. That's what I'm saying. Everyone go buy this book. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That was a lot of information. It was excellent. I'm thinking you're so knowledgeable doing all this research. Um, okay, we're, we need to take another break. So we are, and we're, then we're going to come back and do my speed round and talk some industry news. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? If I had a magic wand, tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious. The planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us, both our bodies and our our world. But man, I do not have a magic wand. What I do have is you and this radio station. 
the Heritage Radio Network. That's what we're here to do. We're here to help lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the plant is healthier, and we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you. Won't you save it, baby? Please save it. Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guests are Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name two things or more, and you pick your preference. Okay. Oh, Seatbelt's like, on. We should probably tell you in advance that we tend to be both and people. <laughs> we don't like either order. We, we, we're well, all-encompassing. Okay. It's the game. There are no rules, but we'll see how you do. Okay. okay. We're open. <laughs> all right. Eat in or eat out? Both and. Gosh. How it's, could you okay. choose? Uh, breakfast and lunch in. Breakfast is a very personal thing. Okay. Dinner out, man. Okay. What's going on? What's so-and-so cooking tonight? Who's got a cool special? Excellent. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? All of the above. You know we wrote what to drink with what you eat. And it's not just a food and wine pairing book. It's a food plus wine plus beer plus cocktails plus sake plus mocktails plus water, coffee, tea, pairing book um, because I couldn't give any of those up. It depends. With the right food, you, you want the right beverage and why should you limit yourself? I hear you. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I mean, okay. don't, don't even get me started on water. I go, you know, <laughs> and before that we did the book, like water, who thinks about water? We think about water now. You know, I added in mocktail because a lot of pe- a few of my guests, you know, were picking mocktail and now I might have to add in water. But then I w- then it would be too much. I could add in milk. I mean, exactly. it could it could go crazy. So I'll stick with my four. Okay. Tasting menu or a la carte? Depends on the restaurant and the occasion. But typically I'm a tasting menu girl because what I've found is when I go into a restaurant, I like having a conversation with the chef through their food. And so I like going in, if they offer a tasting menu, seeing what that is, seeing what they send, um, seeing the way a chef thinks about the order of a menu, the way that you might compose a poem, you can, you know, a really astute chef who, right. you know, really puts forward a point of view through the menu design. I like hearing what they have to say, especially if I haven't met the chef yet, because I feel like I get to know them a lot through their tasting menus. So I typically like, especially if I'm okay. eating someplace for the first time, like to do tasting menu. I would agree. And then the other thing is if they are doing pairings, again, we're both and people, uh, we'll, we like to split a, uh, a wine pairing or a beverage pairing, because sometimes you will get a cocktail, a mocktail, a glass of wine. Uh, we, we had a tasting menu one time with Norman Van Aken, and he ended up serving a red wine before a white wine, which back in that day was like crazy, <gasps> yes. Well, it turned out to be a very light Beaujolais to go with a little bit of risotto and truffle, and the next course was heavier, and he poured a white burgundy. It's like, perfect. Right. So. I think that's, there's a lot of fun. We've had a lot of cool beer pairings that way, too, that I would normally not go for. Okay, let's keep going. Mm-hmm. How about small plates or large plates? Depends on the dish and the place. Um, I love them both. Okay. Yeah, if I'm out for tapas, small plates. If I'm out of, you know, for pizza, I want a big plate. I want my own pie. Communal table or chef's counter? 
Should I just end the game? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we, we, okay. not, we're not the ones putting the speed in the speed run. Some people, some people are speed, some people aren't, um, and it's it's fine. And actually, for me, I would say neither because I really like being just out to dinner with Karen, just the two of us. Where we can really talk. I mean, we never turn it off. It's like if we, anything we get at the table, we're going to talk about. Right. And I love just being. She's my favorite guest, so I just want to hang out with her oh, and talk about. Thank you, food. sweetheart. So he so, must be inspired because so, it was just our 25th yeah. wedding anniversary. So I wanna, Happy I, anniversary! I want to do this. It's a big one. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I again, I'm sorry. I would go with either, depending on the. <laughs> there are no rules. Yeah. Okay. If I'm at mini bar, I'm going to sit at the chef's counter. If I'm at okay, you know, communal table. Where do we eat at the communal table? Um, I don't know. I don't give dead air, but I don't know. No. But we, it did recently, and it was a blast. We ended up chatting with the people next oh, to yeah. us, and it was a fun. Actually, at DB Bistro Moderno, oh, the yes. sweetest uh, young women in the industry. We never would have met them before, and we had a great conversation. How's so, the fire? You know, they, they okay. had their moments. Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Good topical question. Well, thank you. You know what? I think whatever makes the server inspired to give the best service. So if this is a trend that is inspiring better service, I'm all for all-inclusive. Whatever offers the best incentive to the servers. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's, it is situational, but it's sort of funny. Like, we went to Superiority Burger recently. Well, not recently. We've been I did bu- one of my solo dining experiences at Superiority Burger. Crazy for Superiority Burger. But, like, we, you know, we get, uh, like, I'm looking for the tip jar. It was so good. And, and they're like, no, we're, we're okay. You know? And then, then I thought, well, like, well, gosh, I go to Shake Shack. And there's no tip jar. It's like everyone's just taken care of and paid well. And they're all right. happy and engaged. And the service is good and fast. And so, you know, I think it, it is situational, but there's times where when you go out to a nice meal, and, and here's what's funny, people get all uptight about this, I'll try to beat this fast, but like, if you go out with a party of six, they, they include the tip, 20% service yeah, charge, just right there, so true. why is everyone so uptight about the tip? It's like, it's been around for a long time. I don't know. Like, we, a dirt candy, it seems to work really well, and they seem to love it, yeah. so wow. bravo, Great service. I, I've been asking the tipping or all-inclusive charge question since a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and it's the answers are starting to change. For the first, I think, forty episodes, everyone said tipping, but it's, it is it, yep, it's, it is very around. it's very fascinating. <laughs> yes. Either or, okay. So we're 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 running. Uh, okay, we'll be fast. We're running right, we're low on time, <laughs> so let's go quick on the last ones. We got, we got meat or vegetables. Oh, veggies. We've been eating vegetarian. Here for you go with that years. one. Okay. Hard copy, paperback, or ebook. <gasps> Hard copy or paperback. Yeah, with, with a highlighter. <laughs> we, and of course, we, we were early adapters to Kindle. We read a lot on our, on our iPad, but I love paper. I'm an author. What can I say? Okay. Mm-hmm. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Uh, I would skip both and jump over to Superiority Burger for a $4 uh, sorbet. <laughs> I have to go back and get that because I didn't have Oh, it. you're kidding. No, it's I went it. back the second night. The night after we were there for the first time, we went back again just for dessert, just for the sorbet and the gelato. It's amazing. It's the best $4 you can spend in New York City today. There, I said it. Um, <laughs> there you go, Brooks. <laughs> that one's for Fabulous. You. Last one, Manhattan or Brooklyn? Uh, I'm going to go with both on that one. I would never want to give up Polly G's. I but love it, Polly G. But if it's an anniversary or a birthday and there's a zero or a five, you know, I kind of want to go to Danielle and okay. just let the dice roll. That's I know. Right. I, I, when I first moved to New York City, I moved to Brooklyn. That was where I fell in love with Andrew. But now we live in Manhattan and 25 years later, and we like that too. So <laughs> I say both and again. Okay. Done. We are, we're, we're, we're behind on time. So my, 
for industry news, one of the articles I had was, you mentioned it already, um, in the New York Times, Renee Renzepi is planning to close Noma and reopen it as an urban farm. Uh, it was in by Jeff Gordonaire. So people should check that out because... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, it's a wonderful article. article. Actually, there's there's a lot there to kind of unpack. But I, yeah. I love that Jeff on Twitter, I think just today, said or the other day, said that that was his most eye-opening insight from doing that story was the fact that it was turning vegetarian for 50% of the year. So uh, really interesting. Have trend. you been there? Because I haven't. We haven't. But, and now the question is, like, do you... I was thinking, oh, I want to rush and go before he changes it, but rush and go. I mean, it's, he's closing <laughs> it at the end of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, w- I do want to go at some point, and I don't think it matters when. I just want to see what they're doing out there. Mm-hmm. So um, the other news we just to announce that so this coming Monday is Cher's second helping yes, of life benefit. Absolutely. You're going to be there, Karen. I'm yes. going to be there. Excellent. Um, it's I'm, the place to be. All the cool kids are there on Monday yeah. night. <laughs> it's a great event. It's on Pier 60. Um, I'm going to be helping Barbara Sibley at La Palapa out. So. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I've worked with Barbara before in that event, and that's where I first met her. That's why it's so great to go and do it. And now, and I'm going to blank in her name. Oh, I'm so sorry, Lauren, the, the chef de cuisine of Maria. I'm Paris with and I'll be um, helping her serve her I believe it's a chilled tomato soup get it while you can okay (laughs) I will be there it's a wonderful cause it raises money to help uh, survivors of breast and ovarian cancer it's a phenomenal event it really is and the other news we had was Karen you're going to be at the 92nd Street Y on November 9th interviewing Madar Joffrey. Yes, absolutely. She's got a great vegetarian India book coming out and really looking forward to that. It's going to be a great night. Terrific. Okay, we're going to take one more break. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. So uh, stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience this week, which is at a new pop-up restaurant called Eureka. Here's the rundown. Location, 639 Washington Avenue at Creative Edge Studio in Manhattan's West Village. The concept, an ongoing three-day-a-week chef's counter and tasting menu. The chef, 16-year-old Flynn McGarry. Why did I go? because this young chef has received much praise and attention for his cooking and his age, and I really wanted to try his food. My experience. I arrived for a 6 p.m. seating along with 10 other diners. Champagne was offered, but I passed and opted for the sparkling water. I was the only solo diner and seated between two really nice couples who I enjoyed conversation with during our 14-course tasting menu. We sat around a horseshoe arrangement with the open kitchen in the middle, Flynn worked quietly center stage, preparing the entire meal, 
Aside from his managing partner, Matthew Maiko, who is the ma- was the maitre d' and server for the evening, there were no helpers. It was a very impressive and well-executed evening. What did I get? Well, the dinner began with a few small bites, including foie gras cured with peanut and sour cherry. Main courses included hamachi, summer squash, followed by winter squash and dry-aged ribeye. And one of the two desserts was sesame ganache. My take. Every course was nicely presented in beautiful dishes, and it was all really good. My favorite courses were the sea urchin with carrots and coffee, and it was a very interesting combination that worked, and the winter squash and pine semifreddo with grapefruit as the other dessert. The scene. Foodies. Perfect for anyone who appreciates an original tasting menu. Interesting tidbits. At the age of 10, Flynn decided he wanted to be a cook. Since age 13, he's had a fine dining supper club, which turned into a monthly Eureka pop-up restaurant in L.A. He gained notoriety being featured in The New Yorker, Talk in the Town, and then on the cover of the New York Times Magazine food and wine issue. He's staged or worked at 11 Madison Park, Alinea, Alma, and more. Personal fun fact. At the age of 16, I was a hostess at a local Miami restaurant called Carlos and Pepe's. That was my first restaurant job, and my parents thought I was ambitious. (laughs) The cost, $160, including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. I see very good things for this young chef. All the best to you, Flynn. The website is eurekanyc.com. Okay, it's time for the final question. So, are you good? Well, first, are you guys planning to go to this dinner, Eureka? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, 16? And he's 16. Wow. Yeah. And when he turns 70, he's going to raise the price to $170? I don't know. It is, it's gotten, people have been talking about that, but I'm glad I went. I, I thought he, you know, yeah. I, want, I was curious, and I thought he did a great job. That's cool. Mm. So, um, okay, the final question. So next week, my guest is Brett Trossi. He's director of operations at the Dynex Group. Oh, we love Brett. You know Brett. Yeah. Cool. Of course, he's great. So what would you like to ask him? What would we like to ask Brett? Yeah, whatever you want. Brett, how the heck are you? <laughs> we haven't seen him in ages. Actually, we had the wonderful time with our mutual friend, Steve Bechta, who's one of the top uh, restaurateurs in Ottawa. And um, I think Steve and his wife, Maureen, were there. And mm-hmm. we were all at Brett's place. So actually, wasn't Gail Simmons there that night with yes. her squeeze? And it was way too many years ago. So, Brett, how the heck are you? Okay. <laughs> Karen and Andrew want to know. Uh, done. Terrific. Well, that's the show. Oh, well, this was so much fun, Sherry. Thank you so much for having us on. I know. It flies by. Thank you. I'm I'm in awe of your careers, all of your books, all of just your collaboration together and everything you do. So congratulations. And I'm glad you're so ambitious at 16, Dean. <laughs> we, we, yeah, next time we talk, we'll, we'll compare jobs at 16. Yeah. No, I, I was actually a waitress. I waited on the guy with the... Um, uh, Guinness Book of World Records um, record for dining out. He'd eaten at the most restaurants oh, in wow. the world. Yeah, fascinating. And All I right. thought that was the peak of my culinary career. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, mine too. No. <laughs> okay, so I've been speaking with Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg. They are award-winning journalists. You can find them on their website, karenandandrew.com. Their Twitter is at Karen and Andrew, and their Instagram is at The Flavor Bible. Is that all right? Yes. Okay. Terrific. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR at All Industry. My Facebook book page is All in the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. 
As a reminder, all of our shows are archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and iTunes. Our new Heritage Radio website is launching next week. Super exciting. I hope you'll check it out. It's going to be fabulous. Thanks to Karen and Andrew and to Jack and Liz over there in the studio who do the engineering for this show. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 with another live show. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 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 Listening.